BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, just one day after the historic inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, still getting my head around that one, we're going to talk to someone who's got experience in both Washington and back here in California. I know, it's kind of crazy, right, Scott? A little crazy. President. More than a little. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, today, as Biden attempts to bring down the heat in Washington and reconstitute some of the norms his predecessor blew up, including the Daily White House press briefing, we have a guest who knows that briefing room up close. She was the first woman to hold that position about 30 years ago, or exactly 30 years 30 ago. 30 years ago, my goodness. Dee Dee Myers well, is here. <laughs> oh, here she is. She's already giving a briefing. <laughs> hold on. She's a longtime communications, long-time communications expert and recently named by Governor. Gavin Newsom as the top economic advisor. Welcome to the breakdown, Didi. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Scott and Marisa. It's good to be here. We're very was it, happy. To was have it you. not thirty years ago? Is my math? My math is probably yeah. Your wrong. math is, is wrong. It was nineteen ninety three. So okay. it's twenty eight years ago. Twenty. Yeah. I'm it's, a journalist you know, for a reason. That, you worked on the campaign. That was almost. <laughs> you that was round almost up. It's correct. <laughs> Three decades ish. Well. Yeah. As we mentioned, and actually right before we started taping, they had another one. But, you know, yesterday we saw the first press briefing with Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Um, She said she'd be restarting this daily tradition. Um, And I just wonder what you think, having been in that position, like how important is that? This is not something the Trump administration did throughout their presidency. Uh, I think it's really important in a number of ways. And look, I think, and I've actually talked to Jen about this. Jen, Jen is a fantastic professional who's, you know, been at this, knows what she's doing. But I think the briefing just in general is a really important tool for two things. One, for the administration to communicate its views to the American public through the press and for the press to ask questions. It is important for the fourth estate to hold, uh, uh, you know, power accountable. Uh, and that should be a dialogue. And as, you know, having served in that position, you both provide information, but you also get a lot of good feedback too from reporters, not only in sort of holding your feet to the fire about being consistent and, uh, you know, kind of c- connecting the dots between what you said yesterday and what you're going to say tomorrow, uh, but you take that information back inside the White House and uh, it, it helps both provide transparency, it helps shape. Uh, you know, not so much policy, sometimes, you know, what the reaction is in the outside world. Um, But, and I think that dialogue is important. Now, the briefing can be a bit of of performance art, as we've all seen, but nonetheless, I think it serves a purpose. And the most important thing about reestablishing this briefing is that the person behind the podium, most days, Jen Psaki, will actually tell the truth and will deal in facts. And that's 
whole new thing. <laughs> I want to ask you about that because, yes, we all remember Sean Spicer on day one, uh, day one arguing about the size of the inaugural crowd and insisting it was bigger than Obama's. And I think we were all like, what is going on here? But, you know, as you said, Jen Psaki promised to always tell the truth. She may not have used that exact phrase, but, you know, that's not always exactly possible, is it? Because either you don't have all the information because you weren't given it, and sometimes because of national security or other reasons, you have to kind of, you know, you kind of have to bend well, the truth a, a little bit. Well, no, I, I think you have to be very careful of, of ever doing that. You you don't have to tell the whole truth, right? You don't have to tell everything you know. Um, and there may be things that you can't say publicly, or there are often things that you don't know. I mean, one person can't know everything, even if you interact with the president regularly and the senior leadership regularly, which press secretaries do. Um, but you can always be sure that to the best of your ability, to the very best of your ability, that what you do say is true. Um, and that's really important. So, um, you know, there's a million ways to, to, to work around that. You can say, I can't share that with you. You can say, I'll get back to you on that. You can say that's classified. Um, there's a lot of things that you can say that don't require you to say the president's crowd was bigger than President Obama's when everyone in the world can see the corresponding photos uh, and judge for themselves. Or, you know, provide misinformation uh, even by, and I think that you have to be careful to, to be true in implication as well as in fact. So you can't you know, imply, lead people to believe things that aren't true. Um, you know, sometimes that happens uh, by, um, you know, I want to say accident. It's not intentional. If it's intentional, then you are corroding the currency of your role, which is the truth. Right. And I think on the other hand, you know, reporters have to worry about their own currency, which is being truthful and, and their reputation and, and being seen to hold power to account regardless of party. But this is such a weird moment, right? After how just nasty the relationship was between the president calling, you know, us the enemy of the people and, and a lot of his supporters kind of parroting that. And we often hear Republicans complain that like the, the media goes easier on Democrats. Um, and I'm just curious, like what you think of that allegation and, and how you think reporters should be handling this um, because you know, it, it's not our job to root for Joe Biden or to support him. Right. It is our job to hold him to account as well. Right. And, and I, I mean, I, I think that that is I don't I think that is the reputation. Right. Journalists are they're they're Democrats or they're left leaning. They're easier on, on, on other Democrats. Um, if you ask any president who's ever held the office, they will tell you uniformly. This is the one thing that they all agree on. They all hate the press and think they got the harshest, most unfair, most biased treatment of any president in the history of the republic. Maybe um, governors, too. Maybe governors, too. I, yeah. I remember a mayor <laughs> who thought Some that. governors was. have been known to feel <laughs> that way, um, you know. Yeah. But um, and I just think that that comes a little bit with the territory, right? It's it's everything you do is questioned. And, and look, that's, that's hard. It's exhausting. But it comes with the territory. Um, and... Uh, so I think that journalists uh, have to do that role. Like you cannot have a free society without a free press. I, I'm a firm believer in that. That said, um, I think one of the things that's, you know, increased the kind of um, animosity between any White House of any party and the press is that there's a lot of um, of uh, headline grabbing, uh, scandal, uh, you know, searching, click baiting that goes on. Um, and stories about, uh, you know, interpersonal crises and scandals are a lot more interesting to the readers or the listeners, the viewers, than a, a complex analysis of a policy in the wake of a pandemic, you know? So 
that tension is just built in. Well, and you had your more than your share of that working for Bill Clinton. That's my maybe a good transition back to uh, to the campaign and to his uh, to the White House. Uh, you were the first woman, as Marisa said, uh, to to hold that job. And I'm wondering, you know, how how do you think that affected your ability to do your job and how you were treated differently? Uh, yeah, you know, the 20, 30 years ago, um, there hadn't been a lot of women uh, behind those podiums, right, in the, the State Department or the White House or the other, you know, the, the Defense Department. Um, and so I was, three things, I was young, uh, I was 31, I was uh, the first woman and I was from California, right? So that's kind of the trifecta of how not to show up uh, <laughs> because, it, it, you know, I think it took, it was harder for me to establish my authority. I was just young and I, I, I wasn't of Washington and I was a woman and that, all these things were different. Is there uh, something of, particularly about California? Y yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, they, they literally, people said to me in the briefing room, the country tilts to the left and all the nuts and uh, fruits roll downhill. Uh, that, that so there was this kind of idea, and I think it still exists, by the way, that oh, yeah. California is a remote land of people with different ideas. And I would say that, yeah, and those ideas will be yours in 10 years, so pay attention. Right? <laughs> but, um, but nonetheless, so I, I do think that that was a, you know, it was a bit of an exotic like creature and establishing, again, authority uh, was was challenging. I don't think that's true at all anymore. I think, um, and you no. Know, I guess besides Scott, uh, President Trump only had women right representing him. Um, the there've been there've been Dana Prino worked for President Bush. Uh, you've now seen the number of the Trump press secretaries, and now Jen Psaki comes at it with so much experience and so much poise. And we've seen her two days now, and she's been fantastic. What about though? Just if I could just ask quick follow because that, that was sort of like the outside perception, but inside the White House, you had problems because you were a first woman too, didn't you? I think, they were the, I think they were the same problems. I think I was young and I was female and I was from California, although I had come from the campaign, so that was helpful um, because I had spent a lot of time with Governor Clinton and then President Clinton, and so I had a good relationship with him, which, which, which is always helpful in that role. But there were some other structural problems, and there was a lot of people dipping into the communications lane um, and uh, you know, so sort of being able to get my arms around that and manage it and speak with authority was challenging. It got better as time went on, but um, it, you know, it, took, it took a lot of work. I think, you know, again, I think this White House, for, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about the Clinton transition in, in early days was there had only been uh, four years of a Democratic president in the previous 24 years, and that was the Carter presidency. And that at the time was looked upon as a, as a, as a not very successful presidency. And so there weren't a lot of people around who had had the jobs, right, and had had the experience and that came to it the way that this White House has people who have you know, served in two previous Democratic administrations. Many of them have been through this, have been through transitions, have stood up White Houses, have, you know, sort of figured out structures. Um, and so I, it, 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 um, it, it really is refreshing to see how experience and how they can hit the, the ground running on, on day one. That wasn't exactly my experience. Yeah, they, they know where all the uh, the, the yeah. secret bathrooms are and, 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 and the names of the people in the press, right? Which is like yeah. that relationship matters. I mean, to Scott's point, some of the stories looking back, 
And I was struck by you saying, you know, you were young and, and a woman. And I remember feeling, especially in my 20s, like, who who knows? Is this gender or age bias? Like, you don't always know. Um, right, it all but, gets wrapped together. Yeah. But, you know, you left after a couple of years and there was a lot of stories at the time about how maybe you didn't have as much access to the president. Um, I'm curious, like, if you want to talk about that, fine. But more just like how important is that the person representing the president at that podium does have his or her ear whenever or not whenever they want, but regularly? Um, it's really important. I mean, it's really important to be able to um, go out there with both the confidence that you know what the president is thinking uh, and with the ability to say so. Right. Because I think you, you, the press is skeptical. Um, they want you guys, all y'all, want to be in the room from the minute he wakes up, you know, and puts on his socks the minute he shuts off the light at night and know everything he's doing. And you, you know, you, you, you want to make sure that whoever your, uh, whoever the uh, narrator is, is, is knows what's going on. And I, I, I think that's a fair, uh, I think that's a fair requirement. I, I, I had, you know, relatively good access to the president throughout but there was a lot of other decision making that was harder for me because there were so many people in the lane. And, you know, I, when I first came, I, you know, President Clinton had, had made a commitment, which was to have an administration that looked like America. And as he got further into it, uh, you know, the women's groups were rightly protesting that there weren't enough women. And so one of the solutions to that was to make me the press secretary but to give me a lower rank and a smaller office than my predecessors, right? And in the first couple of months, George George Stephanopoulos did the daily briefing. So those added to, to my woes, and it took me a long time to fight back from that and to reestablish the credibility of the press secretary. Um, I was, I was, you know, I was more successful in some aspects than others. Uh, it's a longer story. I'm happy to share it with you guys someday. But that's, uh, but, but, um, but I think it all of it underscored that, that that that's important, not just to the press secretary. You know, it's not just to make my life easier. It's important to the president and to the relationship between the White House and the public, right? right. To know that there's a reliable uh, information and that that person is really speaking on behalf of the president. Which, like, the press secretary is representing the White House to the public and the press is helping get that message out. Um, we're going to have to take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with veteran communications expert and Gavin Newsom advisor, D.D. Miders. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. 
special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we are talking to Dee Dee Myers. She was White House Press Secretary under President Clinton and now leads California's Office of Business and Economic Development, advising Governor Gavin Newsom. So Dee Dee, um, as we've been detailing, you have a lot of experience in communications, but you've been called in to help really restart this economy that's been suffering under the pandemic. Um, what is your charge and, and why do you think the governor hired you in this role? Um, well, that's an excellent question. Um, I actually have spent a lot of uh, time in the last uh, decade or so in the private sector. In fact, I spent most of the time since I left the White House in the private sector um, working with businesses as a consultant and then uh, at Warner Brothers uh, as a member of the executive committee uh, and on corporate boards. And so I've certainly spent a lot of time dealing with, you know, business issues and economic issues. Um Although, you know, I'm more known as a communicator, which 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 I continue to be. Uh, so this summer I was volunteering. I had left Warner Brothers last spring and started volunteering. Uh, you know, Ann O'Leary, who was then president, I mean, uh, Governor Newsom's chief of staff asked me if I would come help. Just there obviously was a lot going on between the pandemic and the economic slowdown and everything else. And so I, I happily came in as a volunteer. And among other things, I worked with the governor's task force on uh, business and jobs recovery. And one thing led to another. And he asked if I would come on in this role, uh, which was vacant. So I felt like it was a good time to, you know, put my shoulder to the wheel uh, and help the state recover from everything that's going on. You know, it's interesting you were recounting earlier how other people kind of got into your lane of communication when you were at the White House. And I would yeah. think that now that is your expertise, even though it's not your job, because the vacancy yeah. was with the agency. And so how are you going to stay in your lane? And I would wonder, given like French Laundry and all these other problems the governor is confronting, possible recall, he might just kind of want to lure you over into the communications office. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, it is it's like hard to escape your past completely. And, and I am a senior advisor to the governor and the director of the Office of of, of Economic uh, Business and Economic Development. So I think the intention was always that I would spend a little bit of time um, helping because communicating with the public is a really important part of what any leader does. Um, it's not my full-time day-to-day job. There are certainly uh, other people um, that that do that. Sahar Robertson, for, you know, who's there. Roberts is 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 great. So, um, but I, I I I do try to be helpful, and I think it's important for him to communicate certainly his message to businesses and to workers about what's happening in the economy and how we are investing in economic recovery and how. Uh, you know, we want to build back an economy that's stronger, fairer, prosperous for all Californians. And so that's obviously a huge communications component. Um, there's the work, but there's also talking about the work and sharing the work. And so that part of it um, obviously comes pretty naturally to me as well. I mean, we spent the top half really talking about the press relationship with the White House. And I'm curious coming into Sacramento. I mean, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom likes to talk. He likes to communicate quite a bit. Um, <laughs> we've both covered him since he was mayor. Um, I always tell the story of, you know, him coming in with his like 
two eight folders of matrix of accountability and just like filibustering an entire you know meeting with reporters because he, he just goes and goes i mean are you talking to him about that at all and like because i think the knock is from a substantive perspective that sometimes he over promises and under delivers um and you know we've seen a lot of talking during this crisis but california is not doing great when it comes to covid response the same way many states aren't i don't think any states are doing great i mean yeah. i mean there's some states that have it's been a little bit cyclical, right? So New York got it early. Um, we got it early. Well, we avoided getting it early. Well, we all know the trajectory, right? And I, I live in Los Angeles, and obviously we've just found out that we had a more, um, you know, contagious strain of the virus. That's one of the reasons that we've probably seen such numbers here. But that said, it's a very difficult and unprecedented job. And so I do think communicating about that and sharing with the public, you know, here's what we're seeing, here's what we're doing, um, and yeah, the governor, I mean, he, 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 he likes, you know, he, he's a full, you know, he likes to give a full description of, of what he's doing and what he's thinking. Um, and, you know, everybody brings their self to their job. Right. And so I think that's just one of the, of the, of the ways that he manages. Um, he's pretty darn good at it, actually. He's very articulate and he's very smart. And, uh, you know, he remembers a lot of information as, you know, as he's talked publicly about, um, he uh, has dyslexia, and so he memorizes a lot of stuff, which has been really impressive to, to, to watch and see how much information he's able to absorb and then um, then recommunicate to all of you. <laughs> so, well, let, me, um, let me tell you what else I memorized. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I want to ask you about the, the vaccine stuff, because I think, as you said, when you first took on this job, that that's really going to be the most important thing. We're hearing that from the Biden administration as well. Yeah. And yet, you know, the governor likes to say that California is coming attractions for the rest of the country. And yet we are at or near the bottom uh, of the percentage of vaccines we have that have been put in the arms of people, which is really seems to me inexcusable. That's not a communications problem. Right. Absolutely not. And that's something we communicators often say is this is, you know, it's, this is not about telling the story. Although I do think I do think one of the issues and, and I think the short bottom line, we have to do better. We absolutely have to do better. We have, you know, we have a very big state. We've got 30 million people that are going to be vaccine eligible. We need to get them. That's 60 million doses. That is a huge lift. Uh, we have a complex system and that the counties here have more authority over health issues than they do in many other parts of the country. And so we have to manage around that, but we have to do it. And uh, we have to do it, you know, better than we've done so far. And I think we're making fixes every day. Uh, and we, we absolutely have to get there. We owe it to the people of California, right? And we need to get through this pandemic. And the only way we're going to get through it is if, um, you know, the majority of Californians are vaccinated. And that includes communicating about why it's important to get vaccinated and why people need to do that, because we've seen some vaccine hesitancy. Um, now, that said and owned, they're the biggest challenge to getting to the big numbers, right, getting 30 million people vaccinated is going to be the um, supply of vaccines coming in. Uh, and as we know, that's a huge problem, bigger problem than we thought. Uh, I am grateful that the Biden administration is there and they're going to come up with a natural, national plan and they're going to, you know, it, use all the tools at their disposal to help states get the resources and the doses that we need to get the job done. And then it's on us, you know, it's on us. And, um, you know, we'll know it's, a, it's a, I think one of the things that too, that the numbers look maybe a little bit worse than they are because there's a bit of a delay in processing and reporting information given the complex structure, but we got to fix that too. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the broader business climate. I mean, <laughs> 
the story that repeats every like five to eight years is like California's <laughs> done. Everyone's leaving. Elon Musk is taking his toys and going to Texas. Um, is this overblown? And and if so, why? I mean, your predecessor um, had a pretty uh, fiery Twitter thread about this this week that the New York Times kind of drops somebody in every once in a while and writes our obituary, but we're not going anywhere. So do you agree with that? Uh, I mean, you know, having lived a lot of my life on the East Coast, it was like, okay, wait for it. Wait for it. Here comes the California's over. So, oh, there it goes. Got it. <laughs> right. Um, San Francisco, too. Oh, we like to do that. Yeah, yeah. And San Francisco's the particular target, right? And my husband is a journalist, and he always says, in journalism, three is a trend, right? So you get three companies that are leaving, and all of a sudden, you know, you have Oracle, you have Elon, and you have um, HP. HP and, yeah. yeah, so it's uh, it's a trend. But look, I don't – I mean, I, and I say that I do think it's overblown, but I do think we ignore the warning signs at our own peril, right? There are complexities to doing business in California, and it's on us to work with the business community to address those. And to, you know, I want to talk to, about the tech industry a little more detail because uh, both Republicans and Democrats are angry in some ways for different reasons with the tech industry, whether it's Uber and Lyft and organized labor or Twitter and Facebook and the Republicans feeling censored. Uh, how do you how do you see California needing to strike the balance and the governor having to strike the balance? He was pretty neutral, for example, on AB uh, five and on the ballot measure Prop 22. I don't I don't think he actually took a position on that, which, you know, kind of pitted him between uh, yeah. Uber and Lyft and uh, and organized labor. Right. He signed 85, but he didn't take a position on 22 because he thought whatever happened, we would need to resolve some of the work around the edges in the aftermath. And so wanted to be able to be a honest broker on that. Uh, and here we are. Uh, look, I mean, tech, they're uh, there are unintended consequences, right, in all kinds of facets of, of life and business. And I think we're seeing, you know, you've kind of, there's kind of a couple of different strains, right? Gig workers versus information, the information economy and, and, and the just profound effect that President Trump's Twitter account had on the world, the profound effect. So I don't have a good answer on that. But I do think that, you know, the tech is, is a broad term um, I'm not sure that you can easily pin down what does it mean, right? There's biotech that's going to solve, you know, a lot of health issues and create, you know, healthier lives for people. And then there's information technology that will have all kinds of applications that we can't even think of. And there's, there is, you know, the, the ongoing evolution of the gig economy and how people work and then what the implications of that are for the quality of jobs and the, you know, and, and the quality of life for people who work in those jobs. And so those are all issues that we're going to be dealing with for the rest of our lives for sure trying to figure out how do we deal with the unintended consequences sometimes that are good problems like it's created a lot of wealth for a lot of people and then that drives up the cost of housing in in in, in the valley and in san francisco and in places like that so but uh so an ongoing problem i think the thing though that we can't lose sight of is that california's probably greatest strength is the innovation economy mm -hmm. right and it's it's across the board it's 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 aerospace and um, and logistics and transportation and the technology and all these different things. This is a very innovative place. And one of the satisfying things of the last, there's been many satisfying things for me in the last few days, but one of them is to see how the Biden administration is looking to California for ideas on things like clean energy and, uh, you know, zero emissions vehicles and clean fuel um, and on social issues as well. And so the state will provide a leadership position because we've been dealing with these issues like I said, you know, wait 10 years and you guys will all be talking about what we were talking about. 
Um, and so that, you know, it's not that we've resolved everything, but we're, we're dealing with problems, uh, challenges that are created by this innovation economy. And I think many parts of the country, as we see, as they're trying to steal our companies, right. they want uh, what we have. And we're not going to give it up without a fight. So we like to end on a on a fun note. And um, when Scott, when we found out that we got you for the show, uh, our producer dug up some San Francisco Chronicle stories from a uh, mayoral campaign where you and Scott were actually sparring as press secretaries for uh, opposing <laughs> candidates. I don't even know if you remember Dee Dee, but I, yeah, yeah, I was working I for Art I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 I sometimes that was the craziest campaign I've ever worked yeah, on yeah. in my life by a lot. <laughs> well, I is it my fight in the phone booth? Is what David Chu says, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. You, well, you had come um, off of the Feinstein for governor campaign, which, you know, she lost, I think, right? And then you got hired. And I remember the camp- the Agnos campaign where I was working. said, oh, no, they hired Dee Dee Meyer. She's really good. <laughs> but, you, yeah. but, you know, Frank Jordan, eh, not the best candidate necessarily uh, and certainly not the best mayor. He was a, a good man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, he, Still he diplomatic, Didi Myers. Yeah, no, he, he's a good man. Um, so you know, Art had not been particularly nice to Diane Feinstein. So yes, was, oh, yes. So. And we know she has a long memory. Yeah, every yeah, time I see her, she was, reminds um, me. That was a little bit, um, you know, my Is that uh, payback my saying you're welcome or thank you, Mr. Agnes, um, who's also I'm sure a fine man. But you know, I went from that campaign, as you well recall, there was a runoff, right? Ended on a Tuesday. I got on a plane on Friday and flew to Orlando, Florida, to get on the Clinton campaign plane. That's funny because I went um, to the EDD that day. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you, no rest for the weary there. A lot of losing campaigns in my background. <laughs> well, and then the other thing we didn't hit, which is what I want to talk about, which is that you advised the West Wing, which I just rewatched, and I encourage people to uh, <laughs> go check it out again. Yeah. It was must have been fun. That was a fantastic experience. It was just a lot. It was just a really great group of people. Uh, that are still close to each other, and I'm fortunate to still keep in somewhat touch with them. Aaron Sorkin's obviously a genius and has gone on to do incredible things and will continue to do incredible things. And it was just a fun way to tell the story of of uh, what the White House should be and, you know, what the kind of, rom- you know, it's more than a romantic vision. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a great, it was a wonderful experience, and I'm glad you guys have enjoyed and continue. Well, thank show. you, Dee Dee Myers. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Happy to be with you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Uh, our producer is Guy Marzarati, engineer Katie McMurrin. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. Have a good one. Bye-bye. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just 
what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio is always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.